Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I pray now that as we open up your perfect word, gifted by you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to spend time with Jesus, our Savior, and listening to his words to a difficult question put to him, that we would delight more in him, rest more in the gospel, trust more in your Holy Spirit and the perfect plan you have carried about for salvation, and so bring more, more glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, if you would, you may be seated, turn to... Uh, Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Of course, Mark's uh, big project that we've seen through this gospel, essentially what Jesus is doing is carefully, clearly demonstrating who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and eventually then to show us what he's going to do. And over the last few weeks, maybe uh, when Jesus healed the paralytic, um, when Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, we we're meant to notice this sort of mounting tension. On the one hand, there's a lot of people who are uh, looking at who Jesus is and getting really excited about that. This, who, who is this man? Uh, who is this man who can do these things, who has this authority, who God himself has spoken about? What could he be? And there's other people who don't seem so thrilled with who Jesus is turning out to be, and that's the scribes and the Pharisees, these folks who were famous for being the wisest, who were the, the most moral according to the law, who loved the law, who loved keeping it. There's this mounting tension between them and Jesus, and this passage continues to build that tension, which is eventually going to bubble over. In this passage here, we see that not just the Pharisees, but the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting, and Jesus' disciples are not, and this leads to a question being put to Jesus. So let's read chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. It's the word of the Lord. So the question is about fasting. Fasting was uh, restricting eating and drinking for uh, distinctly religious purposes, worshipful purposes, purposes of prayer. Now, the only time we actually see fasting commanded in God's law was on the annual Day of Atonement, that special day which God had set aside once a year where sacrifices would be offered for the sins of the people and the priest would bring the blood of those sacrifices into the most holy place in the temple, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, to present this blood which has borne the punishment for their sins so that God would forgive them. This was a wonderful thing, 
But the way that they were meant to mark that day was uh, by afflicting themselves, as the law said, which uh, was likely fasting, restricting your eating and drinking and prayer. It was meant to be a day where they were somber, where they recognized their sin, where they understood that their sin deserved to be punished. They were offering a sacrifice because that's what their sin deserved and they were pleading with God, please receive this substitute instead of punishing us. That was the tone that marked the day. So that was uh, the only place where we actually see a command to afflict yourselves, likely expressed through fasting and prayer. But while we don't see this instructed or commanded anywhere else, we do have a number of examples throughout the Old Testament of people bringing together prayer and fasting with an attitude that is very similar to what they were doing on the Day of Atonement, recognizing sin, recognizing their own fallibility, their own failure, their own need for God to save them, crying out to him and pleading before him. And God doesn't rebuke that fasting. He doesn't reject that affliction. So fasting appears to be, like prayer and worship, a very acceptable way which God's people had for coming to him with repentance and longing for salvation and expectation. Now, by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had taken this affliction, this sign of repentance, and turned it into just a fantastic performance. If a Pharisee was going to go to all the trouble of afflicting himself, he really wanted to make sure you knew about it. Did you, did you, did you tell your friends? Did you call your mom? Did you tell them? Gamaliel's fasting today. It's on his Facebook page. Gamaliel is afflicting himself for repentance of sin. Everybody should know. And Jesus actually points that out in the Sermon on the Mount, that that kind of fasting is the opposite of actual fasting. That kind of fasting points to how great you are, how much you're accomplishing. Jesus rebukes that in the Sermon on the Mount. But in the case that we see here in Mark, it's not just the Pharisees who are fasting. It's also the disciples of John the Baptist. So this fast was not likely some kind of special pharisaical performance. It was likely a regular a traditional fast practiced by many, many people, which seems to have been carried out for the most honest reasons that we see in the Old Testament. So why then did Jesus' followers not participate? This is the question Jesus has asked. The other Gospels tell us that this was likely put to him by the Pharisees and the disciples of John themselves. So this was likely a nice opportunity for the Pharisees, not just to already start needling Jesus, but to maybe put a little bit of friction between his followers and the followers of John the Baptist. So why did Jesus' followers not participate? Were they lazy? Was Jesus a progressive trying to water down the law and change it, saying it didn't really matter? Did Jesus reject what it meant to live under the covenant of Sinai altogether? Did he totally reject uh, the way that they were given to worship God, to know God? Now let's think about those disciples of John for a moment. What was the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry? 
We've already seen in Mark that John came, as Isaiah said, to prepare the way for Jesus. And John did this by calling people to repent. They came confessing their sins, looking for a baptism of repentance. Now look at that, that recognition, that declaration, that's the same kind of heart that we saw on the Day of Atonement. Afflicting yourself, recognizing your sin, your need for salvation, and calling upon God to save you. They didn't say it. They didn't perform it. They recognized in themselves. This is what John wanted to bring about, this real actual recognition that we need God to atone for our sin. We need God to be merciful because we really do deserve to be punished and we could only be saved by grace. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are doing this same work which John is doing. They're exposing sin. They're showing people their nature. They're calling them to repent. They're slowly unveiling at the same time that that salvation is going to come in a person, that the Messiah is going to bring about the answer to this pain and this longing. And we hear this throughout the prophets as they tell us more and more about the Messiah. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And finally, John, the last Old Testament prophet, gets the special job of saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's here. He's arrived, and we get that wonderful moment where John says it, behold the Lamb of God, and God says it from heaven. There he is, and the Holy Spirit descends. He's showing it. He is here. God's answer to that longing, God's answer to those cries for repentance, God's answer to your grieving and your waiting has come. There is the Messiah. So this difference between waiting and receiving is central to Jesus' answer to this question. Why do the disciples of John fast and your disciples don't? He gives his answer in two parts. So let's look at the first part. That's our first point this morning. The Messiah has come. The bridegroom is at the wedding feast. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What does it mean for Jesus to refer to himself here as the bridegroom? Well, God's people already understood the imagery of God being the husband of his people. Usually this image was given to talk about God's faithfulness and the people's unfaithfulness. God was a committed husband but his people were like an adulterous wife. But God, the very good husband, promises that he will stay committed to his bride despite her sin, and he will in time, though she has gone far away to idols and uh, wicked loves, he will call that bride back to himself. He will still be committed to dwelling with her and even to helping her and sanctifying her so that one day she will not uh, run away in wickedness again. Now God promised that this day when he would renew and restore that relationship would be a day of celebration when the husband and the wife come together, very much like a wedding. One place where we see that is in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, four to eight says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. 
For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This people, God's people, are longing for that day. Though they seem cast off, they know that God says he will have compassion. He will forget their reproach. He will receive them like his bride. God will lift up the disgraced head of his people and say, I will dwell in covenant love with you. Anticipation for this day would mean that it would be very fitting to fast, to pray, to long, to afflict yourselves. When? When is this coming? Men and women see their sin waiting for a day when God is going to respond with compassion. So then Jesus, calling himself the bridegroom, is saying to his listeners that he is, in fact, the one sent to bring about this restoration. He is hinting that he is even God himself. The husband of God's people has come. God has come to forget the shame of his people, to offer his compassion, to restore his relationship with them. So he has come to end their grieving, end their longing. That hope is now able to become joy. So this image of a wedding is fitting, but not only because Jesus is the bridegroom, come to establish an eternal covenant, but also because this is a joyous thing, because this is worth celebrating. That is why Jesus' followers came to him in the first place. Some of them started out as disciples of John, but they rightly looked at the one who John was pointing to, the one he was telling them to follow. And then to follow Jesus was to celebrate that the hope of Israel had arrived. It had been fulfilled. The Messiah is here, that long-promised Savior, and he is bringing that long-promised salvation This is why they did not fast, to communicate that everything that fasting had longed for and looked forward to was coming true in Jesus. Jesus goes on to say the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Now there's a little bit of disagreement as to what day Jesus is referring to here. Some would say that it's referring to those days between his death and resurrection. The Messiah has died, he's been buried, and there is surely some occasion there for his followers to mourn and weep. Now, others say that he's referring to the period which continues even to this day, where Jesus has risen again, he has ascended into heaven, but we are waiting for the day when he will return and we will see him again face to face. But I think there's a helpful reality that we can see here in either case, that the time for waiting and for hoping did not end with Jesus first appearing. There was a real, actual waiting for the Messiah that had ended. There was a real, joyful restoration worth celebrating in Jesus' ministry. And his death and resurrection really was that long-awaited salvation. Total assurance. 
God has perfectly forever restored his relationship with his people. It will never be broken again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What could separate us from the love of Christ? But despite all that's been wonderfully accomplished by Jesus, there are still things that we hope for, aren't there? Things that we long for. You know, one day, we will no longer hope. Hope will not be needed any longer. Everything that God has promised will have come to pass, and hope will be entirely replaced by joy. But that's not today. I don't think Jesus is telling us that we have to fast on these days. I don't think we need to find a command here to fast, nor, of course, do we see a prohibition against fasting. But what Jesus is saying is those things that fasting represented, things longed for, waiting and hoping, depending, those aren't over yet for his followers, despite all of the real joy that has come with Jesus first appearing. But even while we continue to wait and we continue to hope, we don't lose the joy that Jesus' followers gained the first time that he came. Nothing that God has done can ever be taken away. So we have a real joy that we are meant to cling to even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of longing. There's a real joy which Jesus' disciples could have had when he was laying in the tomb if they had listened and understood and trusted what he said was going to happen after that. There is a real joy which Jesus tells his followers to have even when he ascends to go and be with the Father. The Spirit is coming. He's going to seal everything that I have accomplished for you, and I will be with you always. That is still our joy. We have the Spirit as a guarantee of our hope. We have this written account of everything that Jesus accomplished. We even have the joy of his promises that everything that God says is absolutely going to come true. Whatever he says will happen is as good as what's already taken place. We will see him again. Sin and death will be removed. They will be defeated. We are all going to gather together with him one day in a moment which John calls in Revelation a wedding feast, a marriage supper with the lamb and his people. So don't think that it is wrong to mourn, to weep, and to long for Jesus to come back. Many of us have felt that mourning and longing lately. When we lose people that we love, we feel it. We really understand it. We understand what has not yet been put right and what we are waiting for. But as Christians, we mourn at the same time holding on to a rock-solid, unfailing, and serious joy that we will see those we love again. We will feast with them at the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus, our Lord, who has saved us. And on that day, the time for hoping will be over, and it will be rejoicing forever. So that contrast between hope and fulfillment is the first part of Jesus' answer about fasting. But then he broadens his view in the second part of his answer. And that's our second point. A new wineskin life for new covenant wine. 
verses 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst. The skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. These are two examples which explain one idea. And it's okay to say that neither of them feels entirely relevant to you in your current situation. That's why we're here right now. Yes, we do still patch our clothing, but nowadays you generally have a closet that's got clothing options for you, which means a tear or a break in your clothing usually means that you're down one pair of jeans and you're going to have to get another pair. Many people in Jesus' day had one cloak, their one cloak, and that often even doubled as their bed covering. This was all that you had. And you needed to keep it. There's a couple other references in Scripture. If you think about the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes, the importance John places on sharing a cloak with the one who needs one, this was actually incredibly valuable to you. So many people in Jesus' day would have understood that frustration of trying to keep your one cloak usable and the difficulty when it tore of trying to get that patched with a, a piece of cloth which had not shrunk and, and dealt with all the weather like your usual garment had and how likely that would be to tear away. So they would have immediately understood that frustration. The other example seems even less relatable to us because leather wineskins are just not very common nowadays. I, I saw one on Etsy for $180, but that was just too much money to try and really feel what Jesus was saying here. We're just going to have to try and understand it. I was thinking there's probably like a good, you know, metaphor we could use about like trying to put new computer software into an old system, but I have no idea what I'm talking about there either. So you can go ask uh, like Derek or somebody for like a really good metaphor. <laughs> uh, not that Derek. He's... <laughs> He's, he's stuck with the wineskins, too. <laughs> but this was also a really common part of life in Jesus' day and a part of life that, that uh, they would have really understood. Wine was very common then, and wine wasn't just a social drink. Wine was an essential drink. It was a way that you could keep the stuff that you were drinking from getting contaminated. And wineskins were the regular common way for keeping and transporting wine. New wine, which is still fermenting, can create a great deal of pressure. And that's very difficult. If you've got an old and brittle wineskin, the pressure of fermenting wine is likely going to cause that old wineskin to explode. So new wine goes a lot better in a fresh wineskin. New leather, because that leather is going to be able to expand and soften with your fermenting wine. The two are going to go together well. So both of these metaphors, tearing your cloak, bursting your wineskin, the people listening to Jesus are going to be like, oh yeah, I know what that feels like. I understand that frustration. And they would have immediately understood what he was talking about. There's times when the old and the new just cannot go together. And Jesus' point is clear. When the new comes, stop trying to fit it together with the old. Now again, Jesus is not being a progressive when he says this because there was a promised newness which the Old Testament scriptures were always looking forward to. God's people always knew that uh, this newness was going to bring about massive changes for them. Jesus is now looking past fasting alone to that whole covenant relationship God's people had with him. The prophets promised that with the coming of the Messiah, God was going to inaugurate a new 
covenant, a new promised relationship with his people. We heard this in Jeremiah 31, which Brother Roger read for us. And you might have noticed a lot of imagery there which sounds a great deal like a wedding. A lot of that rejoicing at God restoring this relationship, this husband-wife intimacy with his people, that that's all coming in with this new covenant. Jeremiah had said, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like that old covenant. God says, I'm going to put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the new covenant didn't just promise to repair a broken relationship, but it said that God's people could be assured they would have new hearts, hearts that would naturally, totally, completely love God and his word, love being his people. Ezekiel similarly says of that covenant, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So you can see how When we heard this chapter, by the time Jeremiah is talking to these people, all of the hopes that they had were coming together. They were all coalescing into this single idea. There's a new covenant coming. There'll be a restored relationship. We'll dwell with God. And this brings together even what we would call their eschatological hopes, their big final purpose of history, desires for what God would bring about, having peace in the land, restoration, a renewal of the kingdom. All of these things are coming together as new covenant promises. And that inauguration will in many ways be a wedding. That new covenant comes together with the promise of the Messiah, the bridegroom. And new covenant life is very much the marriage that follows the wedding of the bridegroom with his people. So when Jesus, the bridegroom, is coming for the wedding feast, we can expect this to be an inauguration, the beginning of that new covenant marriage relationship. God's relationship with his people. And this is going to drastically, wonderfully, and eternally change how God's people will know him and relate to him. Jesus is warning the people who are asking him here about fasting. When the new has come, Don't try and fit it together with the old. Don't try and fit an old covenant lifestyle into the new covenant reality that he has brought in. Now this became a massive issue in the early church. What did it mean for the law of Moses now that Jesus had come, now that he died as our eternal sacrifice, now that he'd risen again, defeating death, now that people from all over the world, all different backgrounds and situations are coming into God's family? What did that mean for that old covenant relationship God had established at Mount Sinai? Did the Gentiles all need to get circumcised? Should they still keep the food laws? Should they separate clean from unclean things? There were even Jews who eventually wanted to reject Jesus altogether and just go back to that old covenant that I knew that I was raised in. But one of the most important truths about the old covenant is that it was always meant to be temporary. It still teaches us essential eternal truth. We still uh, need the, uh, the law to point us to Jesus as Savior and show us who God is. But the covenant relationship with God that was established along with that law always came with an expiry date. Paul told the Galatians in chapter 3, 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. The law of Moses was given to prepare people for Jesus' coming. The sacrifices, the priests, the cleanliness laws, those were all shadows and signs teaching people about the realities that Jesus would bring in when that new covenant was established. Hebrews tells us that the old covenant was full of signs that it could not last forever, that it must not last forever. It had to be a temporary situation waiting for a permanent to come and replace it. One of these major signs was the Day of Atonement. That day where the people would remember their sin, afflict themselves with fasting, the priests would offer sacrifices. Every year, there was another day of atonement. Every year, they had to do this again. We're still waiting. We're still repenting. We're still afflicting ourselves. We're still asking God to offer our atonement, and we're going to need it again next year. It's not permanent. Every year the priest must go back. Now here's the point Hebrews says, chapter nine, verse eight. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for our present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The author is saying, if these sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again every year, then none of them has truly lastingly accomplished their purpose. Our punishment has not been really truly lastingly taken. Our sins are not totally dealt with. Our consciences have not been perfected. The Old Covenant was full of external measures, which, like Galatians said, taught God's people how to be ready, how to wait, how to long for a permanent, lasting reformation which Jesus was going to bring. So then the bridegroom comes with his new covenant. Hebrews regularly calls Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, the one to bring about the better eternal promises because Jesus' sacrifice never needs to be offered again. He didn't need a yearly appointment to go back to God because there was more covering of sin that needed to be done, more price that needed to be paid. He offered a once-for-all-time, eternal, unbreakable relationship with God based upon his perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus came to replace the temporary with the eternal. 
to bring God's people out from under their guardian into the full inheritance of God's promises. It was totally accomplished in his death and resurrection. There are no customs left to uphold, no ceremonies to undergo, no payment left to make sure you can secure your inheritance with God. And we can be totally confident that he is coming back to bring to himself everyone who has trusted in what he accomplished. So both Galatians, Hebrews, all of scripture insists to try and live under the old covenant once the Messiah has come just doesn't work. It will tear or burst you apart, like Jesus warned. Because if you try and bring back what Jesus has already fulfilled, you're not only going to be misunderstanding what Jesus did, but you're gonna be misunderstanding what the old covenant was meant to do. The Pharisees, by rejecting Jesus for the sake of the law of Moses, didn't understand Jesus or Moses. They had taken all those gracious gifts of the Old Covenant, all those things that were meant to be temporary gifts preparing you for the Messiah to come, and they co-opted them into a self-service salvation plan where they got all of these things done and God was happy with them, and that was the entire story. We'd seen how they'd done that with fasting. That same danger was true in the early church. Men saying they trusted in Jesus but still wanting to cling to practices which could help distinguish them, at least as being more holy, more worthy, accomplishing something. Paul warned the Galatians, that twists the very heart of the gospel. It injects God's grace with your own works, and it makes us guilty as the same sins as the Pharisees. It makes us guilty of the same sins of the Old Testament people who offered sacrifices without faith and love and hope. So for us, there may not be very much danger of offering animal sacrifices or living by kosher food laws, but we can still be in danger of living and calling ourselves a Christian in such a way that doesn't actually need Jesus to have died and rose at all. Living like people who are looking for a salvation rather than people who have found one. In this way, we could miss the true heart, not just of faithful Christians, but of faithful old covenant Christians, believers who were longing and waiting for Jesus to come, right back to Abraham, right back to Noah. The Pharisees looked at Jesus. They looked at who he was. They looked at what he was coming to accomplish, what he said he would do, and they just could not accept it. They couldn't deal with it. They ultimately didn't want it because it robbed them of their pride. It wrecked that salvation plan that they turned the old covenant into. In a parable, Jesus tells in Matthew, a wedding invitation is sent to them to be with the bridegroom, and they say, no, not right now. I'm busy. I've got stuff to do. They turned down joy and fellowship with the bridegroom, the fulfillment of all God's promises because they loved God's law too much, because it was a relationship with God where they earned their way, where they proved how good they were and got the rewards that they wanted. They wanted the wedding party to be an awards ceremony. Now, without Jewish rituals, we can still fall into that danger. Living an old wineskin life, 
that is incompatible with new covenant wine. Because we can think the same way the Pharisees did. In a way that claims trust in God, says we like his salvation, says that the cross is a good thing, while living in a way that makes the gospel totally irrelevant. One way you could do that is through self-confidence. You may like comparing yourself with other people. It reminds you of how smart you are, how you've got it all together. At the end of the day, you know what? I'm a good Christian. This is your confidence that your place in the church is secure, that other people can be confident that you definitely belong here because of what you've done, because of what you've said, because of who you are. You look at the Bible, and this is a good book of laws and stories and examples telling you what you need to do to make sure that you are a Christian, that you have made the passing grade. The problem there is that if your confidence is in yourself, then your Christianity might not actually need Jesus to die and rise again at all. Think about that for a moment. What is your definition of a Christian? What is your definition of the gospel? Does it actually require Jesus to have died and risen again? Whole churches are in danger of this. They bring in customs, ceremonies, furniture, requirements, not to worship God and celebrate his salvation, but actually to accomplish salvation. We need these things or we are in trouble. And they often point to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Look, we are just doing what they did. This is how they got saved. This is how we're getting saved. And many people are drawn to those churches because again, the goal of those things is not just to worship God. The goal is to say that through these things, my salvation is accomplished. Through these things, my salvation is secured. If you ask me, how do I know that I am going to heaven? I can tell you what I went to, what I did, uh, what the church told me I had accomplished so that I can know that I am saved. Now maybe you're applying a similar standard to that one, but you don't notice it because by that standard you feel really insecure, even afraid. You don't think you're good enough. God is looking for a passing grade and you haven't made it. You're failing. There is no way that God could accept you. Not with all that you've done. And this despair might just make you throw up your hands and say, well, then I guess I'm not God's at all. It's perfect or nothing with God, so I'm going to be a slave to sin. To try, just like the person who's overconfident, you might have this idea of Christianity, which doesn't really fit with the gospel at all. That kind of despair misses the cross. It ignores the reality of the cross. To try and fit that idea of a Christian where it's just all about watching whether you're good enough or not good enough, you've done enough or not done enough. To try and fit that with the gospel of Jesus is gonna make you explode. You're gonna tear, you're gonna burst. You might have felt that in your life, that tearing and bursting of constantly watching yourself either for confidence or despair while you're trying to claim that you believe that a Christian is only someone who trusts in the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
it's not going to work, is it? It's going to ruin your understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection. That might just be like another one of the good examples for you. I got to be brave like Daniel. I got I to gotta act in trust like Noah. I got to be loving like Jesus. Or the cross is just some ticket, you know? God established a, a, a plan by which we can make sure that we can be good Christians. And Jesus, Jesus is the one who made the plan happen. The cross is your ticket to get on the train to make sure that you can do what needs to be done. This is an old wineskin life that you are trying to fit with God's new covenant wine. It is false religion. It's more at home in a mosque or a gurdwara than it is in the church. But you're trying to fit it with the new covenant wine, with the blood of Jesus offered for you. And it's going to miss what every faithful believer has trusted in all the way back to Abel. (laughs) Friends, the gospel is everything. It is your justification. It is the only reason that you will ever be able to stand before God. When you get to heaven, you have two options. Hell or Jesus Christ took the punishment that I deserve so that I can receive what he deserves. But the gospel is also your sanctification. It is the reason that you can be made new, that you can walk in righteousness, not to accomplish anything, because the spirit is in you, because you are united with Christ, because of the gospel, all to the glory of Jesus. The gospel is your only hope. It is your only confidence that you can live with the Lord in his kingdom forever. When Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, he's not just talking about sin, but, the own, but our own sinful ways of trying to deal with sin. Striving, pushing, or despairing, self-confidence, self-righteousness, or selfish sense of failure. Lay it before him. Stop living like you are looking for salvation. And see salvation. See it as it has already been accomplished for Jesus. It is here. The bridegroom is here. He came for people who never could have accomplished their salvation. By the Old Testament law, by any other standard. Remember Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, eating with the failures. He is not here for people trying to figure out how they can get themselves saved. He is here to die as a sacrifice for sinners who have no hope apart from him. So stop looking for salvation and trust in Jesus. And then rest in Jesus and enjoy a new wineskin life that is fitting for new covenant wine. A life that depends upon grace for salvation, holiness, everything that you need. A life that glorifies God for everything, all that you have in Christ. And a life that rejoices every day because the bridegroom came. He came for his bride. From heaven he came and sought her, died for her, 
rose again, united with her, and is coming back. And we are going to feast with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our hope. Thank you that it is a sure hope, a secure hope, a hope that though it is often filled with longing and pain, is also full of joy. And thank you that one day hope will be done and all will be swallowed up in joy. Father, we praise you that this is secure because Jesus has already come, already died, already risen. And Father, may our lives be in keeping with the reality of his coming. May our lives not ignore that salvation is already here in Christ or try and acknowledge him for a moment before turning back to a wrong understanding of how to save ourselves according to the law. May we walk by grace just as we are saved by grace, live by grace, depend upon grace, and glory only in the grace that you have offered us in our wonderful Savior, the bridegroom of us, the bride, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.